Now this morning we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 14. You know, last week uh, Chuck uh, helped us to come back into 1 Samuel, uh, entering back into the series that we have been looking at for the last six months or so, beginning in the fall, uh, entitled A Kingdom in Search of a King, where we have walked through the book of 1 Samuel thus far, and we have made it to 1 Samuel 14 this morning, and last week Chuck looked at chapters 13 and 14, and we really got to see the results of King Saul's wayward way of life, his lack of trust in the Lord, his lack of following God. In that chapter, Saul offered an unlawful sacrifice without the priest Samuel. He said, oh, I, I can't wait any longer, so I'm going to sacrifice myself without the priest. And in First Samuel chapter 13, he says this, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And here's the important part in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So Saul just received the news that his kingdom will not last. That his life of not following the Lord has a result of his kingdom not going on. So in the following chapters, and where we are in chapter 14 and the few chapters after this, we're going to see really the continued demise of Saul, his lack of trust in God, his lack of following the Lord, and why he is really not a king after God's own heart. Now the text today... Uh, it's pretty long. I know I po- always poke fun at Chuck for having the long text. I think he's, he's giving me one back here. So we have a long text this morning. It's 22 verses. So what we're going to do, instead of reading it all up front, we're going to read it and then talk about it, read it, talk about it, read it, talk about it, kind of throughout the whole time. So let's pray uh, as we begin together. Father, I thank you for your word that you have given it to us that we may see our sin more clearly in our lives and that we may see our need for a Savior even greater each week. Father, we pray as we come to this text today that you would help us to grow closer to you, that we would understand the distractions would fall aside, that we would cling on to who you are and what you have done for us. Father, we thank you for giving us this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I have some New Year's cheer for you to start, okay? I recently read an article called How to Be Miserable. And from this article, this is what they say. This is how you be miserable. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious, be jealous, and envious. It's long. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for favors shown them. Never forget a service that you have rendered. Do as little as possible for others. 
In other words, if you want to be miserable, what this non-Christian author says, focus on yourself. We laugh about this, right? But I, I would argue that if we were to go slowly through that list, to read it really slowly, I bet many of us in this room could say, yeah, that's me. Maybe not the whole thing, but here, bits and pieces that we often are very quick to put ourselves first. You know, King Saul in our text has been told that his kingdom won't last. But instead of humbling himself, he doesn't think outside of his little three-foot world. He just thinks only about himself. He looks in. He says, oh, I know how to please God. Saul becomes preoccupied with himself rather than following the Lord. And when we look at a character like Saul, Chuck reminded us last week that we really do need to look inside of ourselves as well. It's easy to look and say, oh, how, he could, how could he do that? But I encourage us to see that we are more like him in many ways than we would like to admit. Chuck asked this question last week that I thought was very helpful. He said, what does Saul do in contrast with what God wanted his people to do? In a text like this, this is the question we have to ask because the whole thing is laced with a man doing things that God did not want his people to do. Because the Lord's desire for his people then and now was to trust him, was to follow him. Again, we see the opposite in Saul today, that when we do lack trust, if you're anything like me, when we don't follow the Lord often, when we find ourselves wayward and we realize what we're doing, sometimes we say, oh, I think I know what to do. I, I, I can just scramble together some good deeds and present them to God and say, okay, look, I made it up to you. This is what exactly what Saul does in this text. He doesn't turn in repentance. He turns with religious duty in his hand. God, will you be pleased with me now? But what we see is that his reaction is actually self-focused. It's a self-focused religion that's merely on the outside. That's the reason I named this ser- the sermon that, religion on the outside. That's what we see from King Saul, that he's seeking to win the approval of God by religious acts when God's desire is truly for him just to follow him, to trust, to repent. So that's our big idea for today is that God, God desires his people to humbly rest and trust in him. We're going to look at two different things. First, Saul's oath. This is verses 24 through 35. And then secondly, Saul's folly, verses 36 through 46. I'm going to warn you up front, the first point is way longer than the second one. So when I finish point one, don't think we still have 30 minutes left, okay? It's a lot longer because we're going to really dig into those verses and we're going to kind of summarize the tail end. Okay, so before we go into the first section in the Saul's oath, we need to rem- be reminded of the context, okay? So where we are uh, in the Bible is First Samuel, obviously, and it has to do with this man, Samuel, who is a priest. And throughout this time, we see that the people of God have been battling against these people called the Philistines, and they are still battling them in this text where we are today. In verses uh, right before this, this is verses 1 through 23, what we see is that Jonathan, who is Saul's son, the king's son, goes into the Philistine camp kind of like a sneak attack in verses 1 through 23, to see 
if he can attack the Philistines without them knowing. But one thing that is very prominent in the verse 23 verses of this text, of this chapter, is that he is trusting in the Lord. Earlier in the chapter, he says this in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, going to the camp of the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Okay, so he sneaks into the camp, just a couple men, and they begin a battle. But what he's saying, though we are outnumbered, the Lord can still win the battle for us. So the first half of chapter 14 tells of Jonathan leading this very miraculous battle. And at the end of the section, it says this in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. So he goes in saying, the Lord could, could win this. With a few guys, he could conquer all of them. And he goes in. Their chaos erupts. Saul joins in. The other men join in. And they conquer the Philistines and they leave and they say, the Lord won the battle for us. That takes us to verse 24 where we are today. Saul's oath. This is verses, just to start with, just verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Okay, so I want you to remember the context of where we are. They had just won this battle that the Lord led them into through Jonathan. And now we come back and the scene has changed. We hear right from the beginning the people are hard-pressed. We've heard this language in the past in chapter 13. The author tells us that the men were hard-pressed by the Philistines. But now, in the middle of 14... They are hard-pressed, not by the Philistines, by their king himself. Why? Because he had laid this oath on them. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he places this on the people. There's no hint on that. There's nothing in the Torah or the law that says that the men have to do this. There's no explicit command from the Lord. But what we have to assume, and what most scholars would say, that Saul is attempting to gain the Lord's favor. Lord, I'm going to make all of my men fast to please you. So his zeal is obvious, right? But it is still self-centered. Listen to the oath again. No one eats until I am avenged. How different from the way that Jonathan spoke. If the Lord wants to conquer the enemy, if he wants to avenge himself, he will. He goes in, trusting the Lord. He comes out. The battle is won. And they said, the Lord won that for us. And here, Saul, do what I say and my enemies will be conquered, is what he is saying. See, Jonathan here is kind of like a foil, or like the opposite of his dad in this place. One, trusting the Lord completely. The other, relying solely on himself, focusing solely on himself. Did Saul erred in requiring more of God's people than God himself did. And his self-centered justification attempts end up not helping him, but harming him. And not only harms him, 
but it harms the people he's in charge of. Goes on to verses 25 through 28. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hands and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. But one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. So Jonathan was most likely in the Philistine camp when Saul gave this oath. So he doesn't hear it. The text tells us he didn't hear it. The soldiers knew. So the soldiers go by this. You think about Winnie the Pooh when I was a kid, right? The, the honey is dripping down from the tree, and you know, he sticks his mouth under it, oh, like that. That's probably what a lot of us would want to do. Soldiers know, I'm not going to do that. Saul, the king said, don't eat, so I'm not going to eat. But Jonathan, after just, just winning a battle, was probably starving. So he sees honey. He's famished. He takes the tip of his staff and he eats. And immediately, the text gives us a play on words. It says his eyes became bright. You could understand this as like being reinvigorated. And he looks around and he sees the physical effects of his father turning from the Lord, putting more on top of the people. There's not often in our lives where we get to see the effects of our sin so clearly like we do here. He looks around and says, man, this is, this is bad. All these people are completely worn out, and it's because my father is not following the Lord. And despite our understanding of our sin often, what I want to see, what I want us to see for this text today is the deadly effect that sin has on our own lives and the peoples around us. It goes on in verses 29 and 30. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So in other words, they won the battle. But what he's saying is it could have been way better. Like, we could have really conquered them. This is nothing to celebrate over. The king, Saul, is bringing harm where his role is to bring flourishing and care. Saul's sin brings about unintentional disobedience of his son, Jonathan. But it not only causes his son, Jonathan, to be disobedient, but also God's people. Let's go on in verses 31 through 35. They struck down the Philistines that day from Mishmah to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And they said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. 
And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar he had built to the Lord. Okay, so they get again to the Philistines. This is a considerable victory they would have had. Most scholars will uh, paint the picture of this being a 20-mile stretch of battle. Okay, I've run one half marathon in my life. This is almost double that, and uh, that was just running, and I almost died, right? Okay, so think about that 20 miles of battle. How would the men have felt at the end? They completed the task. They are victorious. Guess what their first thought is? I need to eat. I have not eaten. The oath is lifted because they conquered the enemy. And they're saying, we need to eat now. I'm reminded of, I played basketball in high school. When we'd go on the road, we would finish a game. And that's exactly how we all felt. And we would, the bus would pull up and they would say, oh, I'm sure the workers inside were like, oh no, here they come, right? 30 basketball players, hungry as can be, walk into Golden Corral. And this is exactly how it is, right? I need to eat. This is what the men were like. The oath is lifted and they can eat. They're so starving. It tells us that they took the sheep, the oxen, the calves with the blood. Those three words are very, very important in this text. With the blood. They're eating it with the blood. Now, in this time, and I would say in, even in our time, in the Bible as a whole, blood is a symbol of life. So the Israelites were not permitted in the law to eat meat that didn't have the blood drained out. The blood was the part of the animal that was given to atone for sin. They would have known this, but the men were hungry. What did they do? Forget the law. Let's just eat. We are too hungry. We are too famished. Now, King Saul put this extra biblical requirement on them, and now they are sinning as a result. So Saul finds out, and instead of saying, oh my goodness, what have I done? He says, the people are sinning. I know a way to fix this. Let me bring a stone, and you can drain the blood, and let's create an altar. He's so blind to his own sin, he tries to cover it up with these religious acts on the outside. He doesn't turn in repentance to the Lord saying, I I caused this. Now, this is not to diminish the sin of the people. They definitely did sin, but it is to highlight, I think the text does this for us. It highlights the effect of Saul's poor leadership over God's people. Saul's distrust in the Lord and self-focus causes him to create an oath causes his people to sin. He's doing the exact opposite of a man after God's own heart. And by attempting to appease God by his religious work, oh, my men will fast. Oh, they're sinning. Here's a stone. Let us drain the blood. He is trying to appease for them. Saul causes not only his son, but also his entire command of troops to sin against the Lord. And my, I think I've mentioned this before. My dad grew up in the Philippines. Uh, he was, uh, my grandparents were, were missionaries, and uh, he was there until he was 12, and he tells me that it's very common, I, I saw this when we were in Africa on mission also, for people to walk long distances with big, like, loads on their back, like huge, you'd be super surprised. In Africa, it's actually on their head a lot of times, which I was very, even more surprised by. And I heard a story that, that speaks of this, and uh, it goes like this, a driver of a caribou wagon was on his way to a market when he saw an old man carrying a heavy load. 
Taking compassion on him, the driver invited the old man to ride in the wagon. It's nice of him. Grateful, the old man accepted. But after a few minutes, the driver turned to see how the man was doing. To his surprise, he found him still straining under the heavy weight, for he had not taken the burden off of his shoulders. Often when we think about turning towards the Lord and following him, we think about hard work. We need to pull our own weight. Maybe we even need to do something for God to keep his end of the bargain. But what we see in the New Testament is Jesus saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So sometimes, and I will say that this is the case in our text today, our rebellion against the Lord can look like working hard, can look like not resting in what God has done for us, not listening to his lead. So going back to the question that Chuck asked last week, what does Saul do in contrast to what God wanted his people to do? not resting and trusting in the Lord for guidance. That's what he did. When he was called out that he was not a king after God's own heart, he says, I can fix this. I can do this. I can make it right. He doesn't turn and repent. No, he says, let me show you what I can do for you. So when we try to appease God on our own terms by bringing him this duty to save us, as Saul did, It puts us at the center. It puts us, our work, at the dead center of the religion. What we do for God, that becomes the center. So in other words, we become, we try to become our own Savior. That's what Saul is doing here. Saying, God, I don't need you. I don't need your work. I can do this on my own. Let me show you the good works. Now, won't you be happy with me? What we see in 1 Samuel 14 is Saul is scrambling to do something to appease God. The reality is that this is not the Christianity of the Bible. Christianity of the Bible starts not with our work, but with us resting first in the work that has been done on our behalf. That we are called to rest in Jesus' work and then to follow him. From there, the outflowing of our heart will be a life full of worship. So it's not just a few bad choices that got Saul his bad news. But it was his lack of turning and trusting and following the Lord. His lack of repentance. So I need to ask you and ask myself, where in your life are you trying to appease God? For your own salvation, your right standing before him by your own work. What we see in this passage is Saul tries this. He doesn't get closer to God. He actually gets further away from him. His attempt to work for God's pleasure is actually causing him and others to sin. Isn't it ironic? Now, the message of the gospel is difficult for some people. And this is one of the reasons that any area of your life People demand things from you. Your work, your kids, maybe even your spouse. We demand things from each other, right? It's hard for us to think about being accepted just for resting. But that's what we do in Christianity. This is the call. This is what Saul missed. A selfless, humble looking to the Lord for salvation and for 
guidance. That's the call of the Christian. So it goes on, the second half of the text. I'm going to summarize the part, first part of the section. That, that What happens next in this part is that Saul proposed that they should complete the annihilation of their enemy. So he wants to go in and completely destroy them. The people say, okay, Saul, what, whatever you want to do. Like, well, you're going to see this laced throughout. The people are just apathetic. They're just like, okay, what, Saul, if you want to do that, okay, that's fine. We're going to follow you because you're our king. But... The priest suggests that Saul should first seek Yahweh's direction. So Saul does. He, he prays to the Lord, should we do this? Should we go to the Philistines and defeat them? But guess what? The Lord does not respond. So Saul assumes that it's because someone in the camp has sinned. Someone must have sinned. This is why God's not speaking to us. So he does this. He casts lots. He says, is it either me or Jonathan that have sinned on this side, or is it all of the people of God who have sinned? Okay. First round, the people of God are seen as innocent. They're fine. They'll go on. The next thing he does is says, okay, well, is it me or is it Jonathan that is guilty? Guess who is guilty? Jonathan. Jonathan is shown as guilty. So in verse 43, it says this, And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little bit of the honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. Saul's foolish oath causes this foolish result. That Jonathan unintentionally broke the oath, and now the lot is found on him. He is guilty. He deserves death. The thing is that the, the man who is actually following God is found guilty. That is the irony of this whole thing. That the oath is corrupt in the beginning, so it causes a corrupt result. And still, with Jonathan, you see humility. I have broken the oath. I will die. If I am guilty, I will take the punishment. Now, what comes next really instructs the reader on the limitations on human kingship, especially at this time outside of the Lord's direction. Because Saul is God's king, is given from God to the people. He had the power to curse. Remember, he said, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. But the one who gave the king the power, God himself, is the one who has the power to enforce the curse. So for the power of the king is shattered here. He goes on in verse 45, naming men objecting to the death of Jonathan. It says this, The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So what we see here is that even oaths spoken by royal kings are still products of human breath when they are not following the Lord. These oaths can be overruled by the sovereign one, the one who gives the power, the one who gives the kingship. One scholar says this about this section, that Jonathan's faith-filled actions had inadvertently brought about the defeat of two of Yahweh's 
enemies. First, one external, the Philistines. Second, one internal, a misguided Israelite king. So when this very king goes against God, the Lord acts for his people. There's a stark contrast here that needs to be seen, and I think it is a reminder for us where our lives can go. Jonathan says, the Lord will win the battle. It is his to win. Saul says, do what I want. Do what I say, and my enemies will be conquered. One following, trusting, resting in the Lord. The other following his own way, trying to appease God with behavior. You know, it's interesting. For many years, they were looking for a king. God's people were sort of thinking that Saul was coming to be the savior of God's people in human terms. But in 1 Samuel, the word to save is used three different times to talk about Saul in chapter 13. But in here, in, verse four, in chapter 14, what we see, that same root word to save actually comes in connection with Jonathan's deeds. Not Saul, but Jonathan in human terms because, becomes the savior or the one who is pointing to the savior of Israel. Because Jonathan, what we see is that he is paving the way. Many scholars talk about him kind of being like John the Baptist. He's proclaiming the coming of a king, King David, the one that would be a man after God's own heart. But further than that, Jonathan is pointing forward in anticipation the true king that would fulfill the role of the king perfectly, God's very son, Jesus that Jesus would fulfill the kingly duty that Saul failed at and even David would fail at. While Jonathan was willing to lay his life down, he didn't have to. The true king Jesus would come to rule and reign perfectly at the same time he would lay his life down as the sacrificial lamb. Now we have natural inclinations to feel like we need to do something to please God. Look what I have done for you, God. Will you now be happy with me? But the call from this text is for us to rest in him, to follow him and the work that he has done for us. So let us turn to Jesus. Let us rest and trust in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for today and this word that you have given us. And Father, we come before you now acknowledging that we are much more like King Saul than we would like to be. Father, we ask that we continually turn our hearts towards you, that we realize our deep need for you each day, and we would turn and repent and follow you and rest in the work that you have done for us. Father, as we come to the table today, we do pray that you would be here present, working with us, nourishing us through these elements that you have given to us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.